Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. From rest periods and meal breaks for hourly employees to independent contractors in the gig economy, Brownstein shareholder Martin Wells and plaintiff's attorney Brian Gonzalez come together across the V to discuss wage and hour issues impacting employers and employees. Well, thanks for joining me today, Brian. We're here doing another Employment Law podcast and really excited to talk with you today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. You and I have been talking for many, many years now, probably close to a decade, about developments in wage and hour law, particular to Colorado. And I really value our dialogue because, um, you know, you tell me a lot of things from a perspective that I haven't necessarily thought of. And uh, likewise, I hope that you take some value in what I talk about. And so today we wanted to just um, bring this discussion to others and uh, go over some of the latest hot topics in employment law, particularly related to wage and hour in Colorado, including regulatory case law and other developments. Um, So with that, could you give a little bit of your background Sure. Uh, My name is Brian Gonzalez. I'm an attorney uh, practicing exclusively in the wage and hour arena Um, on the plaintiff's side, representing employees uh, primarily in uh, collective and class actions. Um, I've been practicing for about 22 years, but I focused on wage and hour and started my wage and hour firm in 2008. So I've been doing it, I guess, for about 11 years. In that time, I've seen quite a bit of change and development in the law, uh, which is interesting. And it's been always been fun to talk to Martine about these issues and see her defense side perspective. Em- employer side and compliance perspective, I like to call it. <laughs> so one of the reasons that I often call you, obviously, outside of any cases that we may share is, Brian, I'm looking at the law. Here's what the law says, and here's the practical reality and considerations that my clients face. You know, what's your perspective? And so we thought it would be fun today to take people through some of the topics that we talk about most frequently currently. So maybe we'll start it off with rest breaks. And on that note, what is your sort of current view on what Colorado law requires around rest periods for hourly employees? Well, I think it's fairly straightforward. The, the law is that uh, an employer has to provide a 10-minute paid rest break for every four hours of work, or uh, I think the language is major fractions thereof, which I would view as two hours. So if you work six hours, you get two 10-minute paid rest breaks. And you you started off by saying you think the law is pretty clear, but hasn't there been some litigation around this issue and whether under sort of an intellectually honest statutory interpretation and regulatory interpretation perspective, uh, the law is clear on this point? Well, I, I believe it's clear that that is what the wage order says and requires as to whether or not uh, what the proper enforcement mechanism is for that or uh, the extent to which damages are available, I think, is still being litigated on the courts. Um, I have a strong belief as to what the requirement is or, or what the enforcement mechanism is, uh, but I know it's still being challenged by the um, employer and compliance side of the V. Um, and so to that end, in terms of the enforcement mechanism, so your read, um, you know, and individuals representing employers, the read of the minimum wage order is that a private right of action Um, is authorized under the Minimum Wage Claim Act for rest period violations? That's correct. I think there's both an implied private right of action and an express right of action in that 
the wage order does allow for recovery of unpaid minimum wages. And if somebody is being denied 10 minutes of compensated time, they are not being paid the minimum wage for that time. And therefore, uh, there's an express right of action to recover for that. So if, a, if an hourly employee works an eight-hour day, your read of the law is that if the rest period is not achieved or if both rest periods are not achieved, that an additional 20 minutes should be paid at the end of the day. I think that is the, that should be the exception. The, the rule should be they re, they should get the breaks, but if unforeseen circumstances arise and the employee can't get the break, then I think the employer should pay an additional 20 minutes of pay. Okay. So as you know, I certainly um, have slightly different views on the statutory and regulatory interpretation of the minimum wage order and the Minimum Wage Claim Act. I don't think that the Minimum Wage Claim Act um, expressly authorizes a private right of action and certainly not on a class action basis for rest period violations. And even if there were a violation that um, it's outside the statute and outside the minimum wage order, that there should be additional payment. Um, for already paid time because I view it as a working condition violation as opposed to a um, paid time violation. Hopefully at some point we will achieve further clarity on this issue, either from the courts or from the agency at all, itself. Well, I would have to say that I don't. this issue has already been litigated several times and judges have yet to go uh, your way. <laughs> it's, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that, that uh, my perspective is correct, but... I hear what you're saying. I would caveat that, in, uh, you know, my read of the case law to this point is that judges have not disposed of these issues, you know, has not found as a matter of law on these issues at uh, the dispositive motion phase. But we don't yet have either sub-regulatory guidance or, for example, the Colorado Supreme Court speaking on the issue that, for example, even though the minimum wage order does not say it whatsoever, that a paid time violation for already paid time results in extra pay. So I look forward to further developments on that should employers continue to litigate this issue. Employers should be uh, aware of the law of unintended consequences because if the wage order could easily be amended to do something like what they do in California where if you miss your break you get an hour of additional time as a penalty. So it may be something where they should just comply with the the law as it exists now but fair enough Uh, it could get worse i guess is my point circling back to the point that we can agree on for a compliance perspective which is that in an ideal circumstance you know we agree that these laws are intended to provide um proper payment and proper working conditions and we you know as a general proposition we'd like to see that employees are getting the rest period agreed now that we have one area to agree on, what can you say about the industries that you've seen sort of be problematic currently? Obviously, service industries, uh, it's a perennial problem in the restaurant industry, uh, cleaning industry, where you're dealing with low-wage workers who aren't necessarily terribly sophisticated about their rights, workers who, who aren't... Um, don't have their papers and maybe are, are frightened of deportation, but who are working in these industries and not being compensated correctly. Oil and gas has been a big issue for a long time. It was just an industry that seemed to, at some point, no one at any point decided to look at the laws and see how they applied, and they were doing a lot of things that just were illegal, blatantly illegal. Construction is always a problem, again, where you have a lot of immigrant workers, that can be a problem. Retail, those tend to be more sophisticated, large employers who are very skilled at uh, 
designing the programs in a way as to uh, avoid liability, <laughs> even though I think it's they're violating the spirit of the law at a minimum. So. And when you say problems, you know, we're focused on wage and hour today, but for um, those of us who don't eat and breathe uh, wage and hour law day in and day out, as we do, what types of violations are you seeing sort of mo- most frequently currently, or alleged violations? Well, it would depend on the industry. Um, call centers, it's boot up time and uh, uh, as I think you, you're aware and uh, not being paid for their preliminary time before a shift oil and gas it was uh, things like day rates paying somebody a flat amount per day uh, without any overtime or not compensating them for a certain travel time during their work day big one I've been seeing a lot lately in the oil industry is additional compensation that's not factored into their overtime rate um, of safety bonuses, mud bonuses, they call it all sorts of things, but they're paying them an additional large amount per day as a bonus and not factoring that in. To the regular rate of pay for yeah. purposes of determining overtime? Exactly. Per diems, for example, with workers who aren't actually traveling but are getting large daily payments uh, that aren't really reimbursing business expenses and therefore should be in the, the daily or the overtime rate. Um, Restaurants, of course, tip violations are always a problem uh, where owners don't like to see their staff making as much money as they're making in tips, so they decide to dip in a little bit. Construction, independent contractor issues are huge in the construction industry um, where workers are classified as independent contractors when they really are should be treated as employees. Yeah, I want to circle back to independent contractors in a moment. I didn't hear you mention meal break violations, um, which has been a very significant sort of area of alleged off-the-clock work that has given rise to a number of class and collective action cases over the years. Have you seen a downward trend in those types of cases? Are you referring to uh, sort of under the federal law where they're being docked for the time and then uh, just aren't getting the break or violations of the state law in Colorado? Both. Okay. (laughs) Um, I, I, I think the state law violations, I'm seeing more of that come to light. I'm seeing fewer of the cases where uh, they're being docked for meal breaks and are not getting the meal break, which I think of as more of a FLSA violation. So circling back to independent contractors, um, that's been a hot topic lately, particularly as the courts and um, regulators and employers and businesses and workers alike all try to um, understand in the gig economy what relationships constitute an employment relationship versus what relationships constitute, uh, you know, independent contractor relationships. And there's certainly a lot of disagreement about that. What can you comment from your perspective on contractors? Well, I think you're being somewhat generous in characterizing it that way. I think what it really is for a lot of these companies is they don't want to pay overtime. They don't want to pay payroll taxes. They don't want to provide unemployment insurance or workers' compensation. So they need to make their employees independent contractors, and they're looking for ways to do that. So it's the decision to classify as independent contractors is driven by the uh, uh, idea of saving money on some of these employee protections. So it's less about them trying to figure out what their employees are than them trying to figure out how to make them all independent contractors. Okay, if we do, if we do come at this as the perspective that I, you know, mentioned to you always is that, you know, the employers that I work with and the clients that I work with, um, you know, I would say with 100% of the time are coming to us with what does the law require and what's the right thing to do based on what the law requires and how do we 
properly and compliantly take care of our workforce, and there are a lot of circumstances that arise that are clearly contractor relationships. Can you speak to, from your perspective, what the hallmarks of an appropriate contractor relationship would be? I I think one of the big ones is uh, uh, working for more than one company. Uh, I think the classic independent contractor is your drywall contractor who works on various houses, is given a a set job to accomplish and isn't really told how to do it, bids it, gets paid a flat rate for it, and then moves on to the next job. Obviously, that all all the factors interact with control and whether the, the ostensible employer has the ability to control the contractor. And the more control there is, the more likely that is that the uh, company or individual is an employee. And certainly that analysis is getting more complicated in, for example, the gig economy where there is less relatedness and control and economic dependence, for example, with um, share car service drivers and stuff. Sure. I mean, basically, as I said, I, I think the empl- employers, it's an evolving situation where employers are looking, there are huge financial advantages to making your entire workforce independent contractors. And employers are becoming more and more sophisticated at finding ways to do that. And with the current administration, they're becoming even more sophisticated about doing it because they're getting a lot of support from uh, the ostensible watchdogs of employee rights. And I think when you mention the current administration, you're referring to the current presidential administration. How are you seeing things trend at the Colorado state level? Well, I, I see, obviously, Colorado has had a bit of a blue wave and seems to be a little more... Um, uh, employee-friendly in their approach, uh, both at the trial court level and the appellate level, as well as regulators and the governor. And I think that's good for Colorado workers as sort of a counterbalance to uh, um, you know, federal policies. And to that end, have you seen um, an uptick in litigation uh, under Colorado state law regarding rest breaks and meal breaks and joint employment concepts um, because of the amendments that went into place to the Colorado Wage Claim Act effective January 1, 2015, and the corresponding enforcement actions that have been going on by the thousands at the state level? I don't know if that, that, that's the cause. I have seen additional break-related litigation. I think people are realizing that a lot of companies just have ignored the state law on these issues for many years, and there hasn't been any real enforcement. Would you say, arguably, because there was no enforcement mechanism at the state level until 2015, and then there was a backlog such that um, you know the enforcement process didn't really, quote-unquote, work until sometime in 2017, that we are now all of a sudden seeing more development around these concepts under Colorado state law, where before there was no case law? Well, and there, was no, there just was no enforcement. I mean... When I started 10 or 11 years ago bringing wage and hour cases and representing employees in these type of cases, there really wasn't a lot of this type of litigation. There wasn't. CDLE was not particularly, you know, they would handle the one-off wage complaint, but they weren't investigating and uh, going into companies and, you know, making sure they were compliant. And there weren't attorneys doing the work either. Uh, I mean, there was some, obviously, but it wasn't uh, not nearly enough given the scope of the work that's out there, the need for it. So I think it's more the uh, increase in the availability of enforcement personnel, both government regulators and private attorneys, um, that has led to this increase in litigation. Particularly in Colorado. In Colorado. I mean, you also see it nationwide. There's a lot 
anybody who's looked at federal court filings has seen a lot more FLSA filings in the last few years than in you know the 20 years before that. Um, and I think it's an example of the entire concept of a private attorney's general uh, statute like the FLSA being put into place. You know, the purpose of the fee shifting is to incentivize attorneys to litigate these cases and protect employee rights where government just doesn't have the resources to do it. Do you think there will be any um, impact to your work representing employees or the government's work representing employees with the amendment that will become effective January 1, 2020, whereby um, intentional withholding of payment of over $2,000 will constitute felony theft? I I guess I'm somewhat skeptical that uh, a DA faced with what he or she views as more egregious crimes, you know, larcenies and, you know, rapes and murders, what what have you, is going to focus limited resources on wage theft. I, I think it's a huge problem, and I think it deserves inf- a lot more enforcement. It should be, but I'm skeptical as to whether in the practical world it'll happen, but we'll see. You know, we've talked a lot today about certain gray areas, particularly under Colorado law um, that has become more developed in the last couple of years. And we expect to see continued enforcement um, under Colorado wage and hour law. One of the gray areas um, from my perspective is whether and to what extent a three-year versus a six-year statute of limitations may apply to certain claims brought under either the Colorado Minimum Wage Act or the Colorado Minimum Wage Claim Act. It's my position that the statute of limitations under the minimum wage order is six years um, for most cases. And what would your position be the exceptions to the six-year statute of limitations? Well, there's, I mean, in Colorado, there's a general uh, statutory scheme providing the general limitations periods for any statute that doesn't expressly provide its own limitations period. 1380-101, I I believe, is the the scheme. But uh, there are several limitations periods in there that are potentially applicable to a wage claim, um, and one of which is the six-year limitations period for a uh, liquidated or determinable amount of money due. And I think in most wage cases, you're dealing with a determinable amount of money due, and therefore it would fall within the six-year limitations period. Isn't the whole notion, though, if the cases are being litigated that often the amount is not earned, vested, and determinable such that, you know, the parties dispute the amount is at issue such that the more appropriate limitations period would be the two- or three-year limitations? Well, there's the, I mean, there's a lot of case laws saying that a determinable amount of money due doesn't mean you know exactly what the amount is. It means that there is a formula uh, that can be applied to the facts to determine the amount of money due. So in your classic overtime case, it's hours times overtime rate, and that determines the amount of money due. Um, One other thing I wanted to touch on with you today is, as you know well, and both of us know well, um, in the federal courts here, there's been sort of two different ways that collective actions have proceeded. One way is the sort of what's thought of as the traditional ad hoc two-step approach where there's a conditional certification and then a decertification process, and then certain judges are following um, the practice that was developed in the Turner v. Chipotle litigation the permissive joinder or spurious process. And just curious if in your practice you've seen, um, you know, a difference in how those collective actions have played out based on which procedural mechanism applies. 
in my practice, the judges have all basically applied the two-step framework. Um, but I, I actually view it as a distinction without a difference. Um, I think Judge Kane's analysis in Chipotle, where he argued that notice should basically go out as a matter of course, is really the intent under the two-step process as well. I think uh, currently a lot of the federal judges have made it much more difficult to send out that initial round of notice than was ever intended, um, particularly given the running limitations period under the FLSA. I think the idea was you send the notice out, you see who wants to join the case, and then you debate whether or not they are similarly situated or whether their claims can be litigated together or the merits. But instead, we've got a situation where it's taking a year to work through just the notice phase of the process. Um, meanwhile, a good chunk of the claims are being eliminated by the running limitations period. So, so um, bring this back around, I think a lot of times when we talk, you are bringing to bear, I think you've described it as the police perspective. And where I, what I am bringing to bear is figuring out how to work with clients on creating compliant and good workplaces for what generally is vast swaths of employees. And um, you and I end up meeting up in the vast gray area. Can you speak just a little bit to sort of the mentality that you bring to workers' rights in Colorado? Uh, well, a very pro-employee. I think generally uh, the employees typically get the short end of the stick. Um, I think even when a case is brought that typically the employer will pay less than 10% of any money the employer might have saved by violating the law in the first place simply because of the procedural difficulties of litigating in the federal courts and the, uh, particularly in the FLSA context, the collective action procedure typically results in less than 15% of the employees even submitting a claim in the first place. Um, so I'm pessimistic about the future of employee rights, um, but we're doing everything we can to stem the rising tide. And from the perspective, again, that I and my employers often um, have is a workforce is often one of an employer's biggest assets and something that my clients invest in heavily and they want to do right by them and they want to be in compliance and they want to be fiscally responsible and operate on the same sort of competitive playing field that their competitors are operating on and continue to be able to keep their doors open to um, employ workers, particularly low-wage workers. And so coming at it from the perspective that I don't have clients that are intentionally trying to violate the law and they do want to do right by their employees, some things that we can agree on from a compliance perspective, um, probably improve policies and training in Colorado, particularly because um, we're seeing sort of increased litigation around Colorado state laws that are different from the federal law. And before the last couple of years, there was no case law and guidance interpreting these laws. What would you like to see? Uh, you know, what would keep you from suing an employer over its practices, particularly if there's an unintentional violation? Well, I mean, if there's a violation, there's a violation and employees are owed wages. I mean, I think that sometimes the culpability, so to speak, of the employer gets factored in in discussions. Um, I, I think in my experience, uh, 
your view, your what I would call rosy view of employer compliance, I think is not always the case. I, I think if it weren't for people filing class actions against employers, they wouldn't even bother with these laws um, because if they're in the absence of enforcement. So, um, and I think there are, although there are some good employers out there who are trying to do the best they can, there are many who are trying to skirt the law to the extent they can to save money. All right. Well, on that note, then <laughs> I will continue encouraging uh, our clients to improve their policies and training, and uh, we'll continue to talk about the gray areas of the law that may be uh, identified by the enforcement bar. Well, what's interesting is I actually view myself as encouraging your clients to engage in compliance exercises to make sure they're following the law as well. So I guess we're both doing the same thing. You're the carrot, I'm the stick. Let's call it that way. How about that? <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for coming in to talk about these issues today, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.